Good morning. So this morning we are completing a teaching series we've been in for almost two months. And if you've been here for any uh, section of it, you'll know that this is a little bit different of a series because in it we've not been like following one book of the Bible the whole time. We haven't even been following one theme the entire time. But rather what has, uh, we hope, uh, unified these weeks together is that each week we are considering different questions that come to us, questions that come to us from Scripture, questions that we hope will make us dig deeper into what we think and what we believe. Sometimes I hear as a pastor people say things like, well, I know I'm not supposed to ask this. And, and it's, there's a sense in that that we can feel like we need to protect uh, our faith or what we believe from like certain questions. And what we've hoped in this series is to say, no, questions are good. Doubts are even good. Uh, if we dive into them, if we move towards them, if we uh, investigate them, they can help us to actually have depth and to have more of a sense of purpose in what our lives are like and what we believe rather than just skimming along the surface with this kind of bumper sticker theology and stuff that doesn't actually help us in times when, when things get hard. That's been the hope in this. And today, as we look at one last question that comes from Scripture, uh, this question is, is actually the one that gave kind of rise to the idea of this series. It was this question, as I think about it in my own life, it's like, oh, I wonder if, if we could spend time in some questions for a little while as a church. Because I think this is one of those questions that when we first read it, it's probably going to sound kind of weird. It's going to sound like a strange question. But if we dive into it, it actually is a question that is one of the most personal, one of the potentially most offensive and yet one of the most important questions that any of us will ask in our entire life. And hopefully as we wrestle with it, it takes us to a deeper understanding of ourselves and what we, who, who we are and what we believe, okay? So this last scripture passage comes from uh, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. And I invite you to listen uh, to God's word to us today. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethzatha, which has five porticos in it. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask this day that you would meet us in this place, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, and that we would encounter you in this time. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, and it might just be me, the first time I read this passage, it's like, that's a weird question that Jesus asked. Do you want to be made well? And I think some of how we have to engage this question gets at, um, what does he really mean by that? What is that question really trying to get at? And that really depends on how we see the point of this passage as a whole, all these nine verses. For example, one of the ways that we could see this passage is this is a passage and therefore a question that's primarily around the idea of healing, of physical healing for somebody. And that certainly does take place here as we see in other places in the gospel. 
But the question, as we look at it, uh, isn't really about that. And we make a mistake if we see this question as somehow being a, a, a pathway towards physical healing. And in fact, at times when Christians have done that, that has become an incredibly hurtful thing to folks who are in places where they are or their loved ones are experiencing illness. Because when this passage is misunderstood as being primarily about that, and this question is seen primarily about that, then this is where Christians can look at each other going, if you really had enough faith, healing would take place. If you really wanted, if your life was really good enough, if your faith was strong, I know people that this scripture passage has been a weapon that has been used against them. Because somehow their child not experiencing healing was a reflection on their lack of belief. That is, that is false, and that is not what this question is getting at. In fact, when Jesus says, do you know, be made well, he doesn't say, like, if you answer this the right way, you'll be made well. Or if you have enough faith, then you'll be made well. It's not even clear the guy gives a great answer, right? He's like, well, there's this fountain, and when the water comes up, I can't get into it. And you're like, okay. Stand up and take your mat and walk, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not even like he gives this amazing theological answer that everyone's like, oh, I've never thought of that before. Yes, you deserve to be healed. I don't think that this question is primarily a question that's supposed to center us on the idea of physical healing. Likewise, as we saw in the last few words of verse 9, this also passage could be seen as another one of those debates Jesus is going to have with the Pharisees about religious rules and righteousness, right? Because he not only heals, but he heals this person on the Sabbath. And if you go to church or if you've read the Gospels at all, you'll kind of get this flashing warning sign here. It's like, oh, Jesus is about to debate the Pharisees about the... the um, uh, the, the nature of the Sabbath and whether you can heal on the Sabbath. He does that in all the Gospels. And in fact, if this sermon gets really boring and you have your Bible with you and you want to read something else, you can read on from verse 9, and that is exactly what's about to happen. He is about to get into a debate with the Pharisees about what the Sabbath is about. That's in this passage too. But again, I don't think this question centers us on a discussion of religious righteousness and not even about physical healing at its core. I think this question in what it's asking is deeper than any of that because this is a question that gets at the root of our identity. It gets at the root of our identity. How we see ourselves. How others see us. And what Jesus is essentially asking this individual is, do you want something else? Do you want to be made well? Are things as the way they are, the way you want to keep seeing yourself? What do we mean by identity? Well, first of all, what we see in this passage is that this person doesn't have a name. Right? Remember the series we did before this one? Uh, we talked about the healing of Jairus' daughter. And what we looked at when we studied this passage was it's, it's kind of misnamed because there's actually two heal healings that take place. One is of Jairus' daughter, but the other one, if you remember, was a hemorrhaging woman. And we said that actually both healings take place in there, but the passage of the title in our Bibles is entitled The Healing of Jairus' Daughter. And we said, well, that's because Jairus was this religious leader and everybody knew his name and he was kind of respected and so everybody knew his daughter. But the hemorrhaging woman, no one remembered her name anymore. She was just identified by her disease. She was seen as one who was unclean, who was pushed to the margins, pushed to the side. And that is all anyone knew about her. In the exact same way we see that as the identity of this individual. No name is given. In fact, we don't even know what his disease is. He's just been there for almost 40 years, probably the vast majority of his life. 
And friends, what we see in that time is that there are issues of identity that arise, both for him and those who see him. For example, he probably now identifies with his illness more than just about anything else. It's what defines his days. It defines what he can do. It defines what his dreams are. It defines what he feels disappointed or sad about because he didn't think his life was going to go in this direction and it's where he finds himself today. It defines the possibilities of what his life can become. This has most likely become the way he sees himself, the way he identifies himself. And the decisions that he gets to make and what his life and his day and his week and his month can look like or not. Tony Robbins has nothing to say to this guy. Just, just, just work really hard and then your life can be. No. This is, this is what his life is and what it's become and the extent of what it's going to become. But it's not just how he identifies himself. It's also how others see him. So, for example, others would see him as one who has been ill for 38 years. Where does he hang out? He hangs out all day at that gate where other people who are paralyzed, who are lame, this is where they hang out. This is where they spend time hoping to get maybe a bite of something to eat, maybe hoping to get a kind word from somebody. This is where those people are, and we see them again by that label. This is a question of identity, both how this person sees himself and how he's known and identified by others around him. Do you see that? And Jesus is looking at this person going, do you want something else? It's a strange thing, but it's true in our lives that we can almost become comfortable when we are identified or when we identify ourselves with less than what we might want for our life. We can become used to that. We can become almost find a sort of safety in that. How do you identify in your own life with yourself? How do you describe yourself? Smart, ambitious, good student, productive, disciplined, ambitious, competitive, disappointed, grieving, sad, lacking friends, feeling lonely. When you think about yourself or your life, what are those core things that if you and I were being honest, this is how I think of me, in good ways and in negative ways? And beyond that, how do others think of you? How do they describe you? How would they identify you? And when I say that, I don't mean people who are far enough away that they look at you going, you just seem so wonderful, you don't have a selfish bone in your body. That's not true, you know it's not true, and I know it's not true. I'm not talking about those people when they're giving you the Lifetime Achievement Award and saying how wonderful you are. I'm not talking about how they identify you. I'm talking about the people who really know you. Know your beauty, know your dreams, know your shame, and know your pain. Know the things that you like others to know about you and know the things that you keep hidden. How do others see you? And what are the things that causes these identities to bubble up? What is it that causes us to feel about ourselves the way we do? What things have happened to us, good or bad? What things have we done to ourselves? How have we disappointed somebody else that causes us to feel a certain way about who we are and how others see us? What is it that forms and shapes those identities? It's that that this question gets at. And then we have the audacious God who looks 
at this individual and looks at you and I this morning in all of that place of dreams and hurt and pain and disappointment and ambition and everything else and says to us, do you want to be made well? Do you want something else? You see why that can get really personal and it can almost become offensive pretty fast? Because it could almost feel like Jesus looking like, it's time to move on now. Time to get over it. Time to, time to move on with your life. It's not what he's saying. We can hear it that way. We can keep it at arm's length because you're going, you don't know. You don't know what I've walked through. You don't know what has been happened to me in life. You don't know what has caused me to become the person I am. You don't know what I've struggled to try to overcome. And then what we do is then we didn't debate it of what it means for us. And, and all of that is a mechanism to keep it at arm's length, Right? Because if we can debate it, if we can get into like the Greek word and what it means and everything else, then we can have a debate around this thing out here and we don't have to do the hard work of looking introspectively and going, what might this question mean for my life? Like debates can actually keep us from doing hard work at times. And so I've wrestled with how do we like get into this? Like how do we, without me being amazingly offensive to each of you going, do you want something new? Like, how do we engage this question, and what does it really mean? And what I'd like to do is I'd just like to tell you a story. And at the end of the story, I'm just going to stop, and we're going to sit down, okay? Because a story, I hope, can hear how someone else has wrestled with this question and what it's meant for them, and maybe in hearing how another person has interacted with it, it can let it get, we can consider how it might be personal to us, Okay? The goal of this is not to hear the facts of someone else's story, but maybe in the story we can move beyond the debate and just go, how might I interact with this too? Because this question for the individual I'm going to tell you about has in some ways reshaped the trajectory of their life. Do you want to be made well? The individual I'm going to tell you about is a gentleman named Bill. Bill is someone I've had the pleasure of knowing for a long time. He is a number of years older than me. He has been a, a friend and in many ways a mentor to me. And, um, and this question, do you want to be made well, has, is central to understanding him. Now, to understand that, you have to understand a bit about his childhood and where he's from, okay? Because this question has shaped and reshaped some of that. First off, Bill was born into a pretty um, kind of well-off family. And what that meant for him was uh, there were expectations of him when he was young. There were expectations about grades. There were expectations about how you dress. There was expectations about the way you use manners in public. There were expectations about certain things. So that we continued to project the image that our family has cultivated for a long time. Now, what Bill learned from a very young age, which any of us learn in that situation, is that uh, there can be a difference in the public perception, what we've called before the glittering image and the private reality, right? Sometimes the public image matches up with the truth of what life's really like, but sometimes not. And then you have to protect the image when that happens, when there's a disconnect. One of the disconnects that was in Bill's life was that his mother struggled daily with a disease, the disease of alcoholism. And that most days she wasn't even trying to fight it. It was winning almost every day. This was a defining narrative in his life uh, and in his younger brother's life and in their dad's life. But no one knew about it. She was able to function most times on a daily basis without people knowing. So it was only those people at the very center that even knew that this was a reality. But for him it was a defining reality of childhood. What that meant, among other things, is that he became very close with his dad. His dad was the more constant, the more stable one, and this grew and grew, this relationship, until Bill uh, got into middle school, specifically into eighth grade. 
And when he became an eighth grader, he was doing well in school, as he was supposed to do, work hard, you know, produce and succeed. And he also realized he was a fairly decent athlete. He played soccer, he played baseball, but his favorite sport was football. And as an eighth grader, he was starting for his middle school team. They were doing really well. And how he would get home from practice was hoping, hopefully his dad would show up to be able to drive him home. Bill's world was a world that when practice ended, you sometimes didn't know if someone was going to show up to get you a ride home. And if they did show up, you weren't certain it was safe to get in the car and drive with them. But nobody else knew that on the team. None of the coaches knew. So one day at the end of practice, his dad had gotten there after work and was watching the end of practice. They uh, got in the car afterwards. His dad was driving. Bill was in the back seat. They were driving home, talking about the day, talking about school, talking about practice, and they came to an intersection. They stopped at a red light. They waited. The light turned green. They pulled into the intersection to go straight, and another car was coming the opposite way, did not see that the light had changed, and rammed into Bill's father's car going 40 miles an hour, T-boned them, and they never saw it coming. Bill was in the back seat, and the passenger side of the back seat, he was as far away from the impact as you could get. And while he had bumps and bruises and was sore, he was overall okay given the nature of this crash. But his father and the driver's side took the full impact of it. And before the paramedics arrived, Bill's father died in the car. He was conscious and there as his dad passed away. He was taken by ambulance to the hospital. They didn't see anything majorly that was wrong, but they needed to check him out. And the doctors and nurses said how sorry they were. But they were also told him that he should be grateful because his mother had shown up at the hospital uh, to take him home and that he was ready to be discharged. But he had such a great support network, it only wasn't his mother, but their next-door neighbors who loved him so much to show up as well. And what Bill was the only one that knew is the reason the neighbors were there was that his mother couldn't drive. He goes home from the hospital. And as an eighth grader, he has to learn to grieve for his father and yet to also take care of his brother and himself because no one else was going to do it. The death of his father only caused the disease to get worse and worse on a daily basis. Bill's life as a high schooler was someone who had to figure out when his little brother's permission slips came home, how he got them into his mom's hand and could get a signature on there so he could go back to school. His life was spent figuring out were there groceries in the house or did he have to figure that out. His life was spent when his brother was invited to a sleepover birthday party, as wonderful as that was. He was the one that had to figure out how do I both cover for my mom and figure out how the logistics of this are going to work in order to get him to and from the party. And that was his world. He said when he graduated from high school, and he did really well because that's what you do. You work hard and you produce. He went on to college, and he said that, man, high school graduation was like liberation. He is getting out of there. He is not dealing with this stuff anymore. And he did what he knew how to do. He got into a good school. He showed up and got an undergraduate degree. He worked hard. He buckled down. He succeeded, and he produced in his life. When he graduated from college, he had done well and decided to go to law school. He got into one of the most uh, prestigious law schools that exists. He got to law school. He had three years where he had great internships. He worked hard. He did what he did. He buckled down. He made things happen. And he graduated near the top of his class, was able to get a job in one of the most prestigious law firms in his hometown when he graduated, the crown prince coming home, the ones that everyone patted on the back and said, look at what you have overcome, talking about his dad and where you are in your life. The storybook, man. 
Bill, uh, in his first year, goes to a party with some friends. He meets a young lady named Bonnie who is uh, intelligent and is um, uh, active in her life. They fall in love with each other. It's a kind of storybook thing. They have this wedding, hundreds and hundreds of guests. It's this, uh, this kind of uh, public gathering, and, and everything seems wonderful and great. And then life happens, right? They move forward, and over the next couple of years, at first, things were okay. But as he succeeded in his firm, things got busier and busier and busier, and they became more pressure on them. And his wife was getting busier and busier in her work, and so Bill did what he had always learned to do. You buckle in, you take care of what you need to take care of, you don't bother other people with your problems, and you do what you've got to do to succeed. But unfortunately, his wife kept looking at him saying, I I feel distant from you. I don't feel like we're sharing this at all. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your heart. You're not asking what's going on in mine. And he was like, you know, why do you need this kind of coddling? I need you to do your part and I'm doing my part. This life can be hard. This is what happens. On top of that, they had two children in less than two years. Yay. (laughs) And so they've got that pressure that's growing and growing and growing as well. One day his wife says to him, can we join a small group at our church? And he says, you know, sure, we can join a small group. That's what we need. He probably went about 50% of the time when he could grace the group with his presence because he had things that he had to accomplish. One day as he's there, the group did what it did, and they're going around in a circle, and each of the three couples is checking in, and for probably the 30th time, Bonnie starts crying. And she said, I am just miserable. I don't feel like I know him. I don't feel like we're sharing the journey at all. I don't feel like this is, this is not what I wanted for marriage. This is, and Bill said, all he's doing is internally eye-rolling. It's like, like looking at the rest of you going, can you believe that this is what I have to deal with every day? Bonnie shared with the group that she had started seeing a counselor to try to help her deal in her disappointments and in her pain. And one of the people in the group then looked at Bill and said, hey, what if you guys went and saw a counselor together? And Bill goes, internal eye roll, do you think we need to? Like, yeah, what if you did? And he said, he thought in his mind, he's like, okay, if I've got to be there to learn the language of what she needs to kind of get over this stuff and to move on, sure, that'll be what it'll do. That'll be what it'll take. They start seeing a counselor together. And the counselor asked him for five visits. Said, all I'm asking you for is five visits. And in those five visits, both Bonnie and Bill, each of you is going to tell me your story of how you grew up and everything else and about your sense of marriage and what you hope for and what you see going on. And at the end of those five times, then we'll talk about next steps. But I'm asking you for these five times to share this story, your story with me. They take the five visits over the course of five weeks. They each get to share. They each talk about their hopes. They each talk about uh, where they've been. And on the end of the fifth visit, the counselor then looked and said, all right, guys, before you go, let's talk about where we go here and what moving forward can look like. She said, Bonnie, let's start with you. Bill said in his heart, he was going, that's absolutely the right place to start. What do we do here? Said that the counselor said, you know, I think you need to think about this, and I think that these are some steps that might be healthy, and I think these are the things I'd encourage you to think and pray about, um, and I'd just like to hold that out to you, and you decide what you want to do. And then she said, and before you go, Bill, I'd like to talk to you, and this is going to be particularly hard for you to hear. But as a person of faith and as a counselor, my sense in you is that you need what is most likely going to be years of pretty intense prayer and therapy. And she said, the reason for that is because, man, you are a survivor. You have survived things that most people cannot imagine. 
you have had to endure things and figure out how you succeed in a way that no child should be made to do it. And you have succeeded like few people have. And it has formed you, and it has shaped you, and it has governed your life. And now everything that you learned about surviving is strangling your marriage. And everything that you learned about surviving is, is uh, taking away your intimacy with friends and the ability to really share the journey. And you have to ask yourself, are you ready to move from seeing yourself as one who has survived to one who can thrive? And then she looked at him and said, in the words of Jesus, the question before you is, do you want to be made well? Sometimes we don't need action steps and formulas. We need to sit in a question. And it wasn't that that day waved a magic wand in their marriage or in his life. But the question stayed with him. And the question started taking him on a journey of allowing himself to ask it with people, to ask it through a counselor, to ask it in prayer, and for years to sit with it and to seek to reshape some parts of who he was that had been formed by the brokenness of this world that was not his fault, but also to own patterns in his life that had emerged from that that he needed to see and face. And that over time, that question began reshaping how he understood what his life might look like. Do you want to be made well? I wonder what it might mean for you and I to sit in that question today. I wonder what it might mean in our journeys, in our stories, with our identities, with the things that have shaped us that very few people might know about in your life and very few people know about in mine, what it means this week to sit with that question. Maybe if we're courageous to let some other people, our spouse, our friends, our small group in and sit with it and wonder at that question with us at well. I wonder what God might do. Because what I want you to hear is no matter who you are or what you journey with or how long you have journeyed with it, I want you to hear that Bill's life began moving in a different direction than where it was before, I want you to remember that this brother who had been lame for 38 years took his mat and stood up and walked. Because it's not just bumper sticker theology to say that in Christ all things are possible. I wonder what it might mean if we sat in that place together to see what God might Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this week that we would be shaped, that we would be formed, but that we would ask and sit in this question with hopeful expectation because we sit in these places with you. A God who says that life and new life and resurrection is always possible. Meet us in this question. Help us to hear it and to consider it and to consider the ramifications for our life. Allow us to have the courage to give others a voice in what that might look like for us as well. May your spirit speak to us and guide us about steps to take and how to take them.
And may we be led through even the darkest valley because you're with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.